as an industry we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Trevelyan, current designer at Robot Circus. So join us as we explore his journey. Please, if you haven't already done so, consider subscribing to Dev Diary on podcast services everywhere and giving the show a five-star review or equivalent because it really helps with the exposure and I'd really appreciate your support. Thanks again and enjoy the show. So today I'm joined by Andrew. How are you? I am very well, thank you very much. Good to hear. It's it's been a an interesting beginning to 2023 for you, but uh, everything's settling in nicely. You're in a good spot. You. Well, I don't want to show the hand too much for what's to come, but yeah, th- things traveling well early days. Yeah, I think they are. I think they are. Yeah, I'm um, really enjoying the the kind of change from you know, having spent 10 years in uh, academia uh, and teaching uh, game design production at Swinburne uh, to getting back into really kind of building some interesting stuff in industry. It's awesome to hear, and we're obviously going to wade into that shortly because this is Dev Diary series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey has led to this current point in time. But before we get to both of those um, kind of core pillars of your career and some of the other aspects around it as well, uh, I'd love to explore a time well before that and purely focus on the the consumption of the art. Um, Sure. Do you recall what some of, if not the very first games were that you played? Yeah, um, very first one definitely uh, was Pong on the Atari 2600 at a mate's place around the corner. Very nice. Um, How did that come to be? I mean, was this uh, this a friend you'd had for quite some time at that point or was it someone you met and you discovered that they had Uh, the Atari? It was a local neighbourhood kid um, and we'd kind of hang out at um, a neighbour's place and swim in their pool and then got a, an Atari and uh, we started kind of playing um, so I'm really kind of tipping my hand there in terms of my age uh, I am turning 50 a little later this year That's look, games from that Atari era are not necessarily um, unheard of on this show whatsoever so so don't sure. stress too much about tipping any hands there or any age things here, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a very common story and it is a I mean, an unbelievably important game. There's no arguing that. So, oh, yeah, for sure. um, how did th- how did your taste kind of develop from there? As you as you got more exposure to different games through the Atari, but as as future platforms kind of entered your life, be it PC gaming, other consoles, etc. How how did those tastes kind of evolve? Yeah, um, I at some point after the Pong experience, managed to convince my very skeptical father to buy a TRS-80 for me for yep. my birthday. Um, and played a whole bunch of games on uh, tape cassette um, and started coding games based on uh, the code that was available on the back of magazines at that time. Yeah, right. Um, So you could kind of buy a magazine and it would have a whole bunch of uh, kind of code and you could rekey it uh, in, I think it was Visual Basic, um, and you'd end up uh, in a top-down Formula One game. Which is all, yeah, very, very cool and... um... Yeah, for, for something like that to be kind of presented just inside of a magazine just seems unfathomable when you think about kind of, t- I mean, let alone the fact that there's very few gaming magazines out there these days, unfortunately. Um, even just the idea that you could just be, you know, quickly taught that and quickly just jump in and implement 
um, yeah. in today's kind of environment is it's an insane thought. But uh, back it's then, yeah, 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 pretty and, awesome. You know, it it's not so much that you were learning. I think you were transcribing. Yeah. Um, and and if I probably spent a little more time with it, I might have ended up kind of learning a bit more and becoming a bit more of a programmer engineer kind of character. But um, yeah, the time. Uh, kind of rolled on and, and that didn't happen, I guess. So yeah, um, I ended up studying uh, graphic design at university yes. uh, and became um, a, a graphic designer, ran my own company for a while, worked in a few small businesses, focus on typography and publication design. Um, and during that period, um, we were playing things like, you know, Doom 2 and Marathon Fat and um, those kind of early first generation kind of shooters, yep. um, the early uh, kind of Blizzard games, Starcraft, uh, and and that kind of stuff. I mean, and then I took iconic games. Sorry, they're iconic games from that from that era, really. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> took a bit of a hiatus, I guess, um, from games after that point uh, until about the the PS2. And what was the genesis of like or the core? I guess the core reasoning even behind that hiatus was it simply that you just weren't finding anything that was catching your eye? Was it just other priorities in life? Like how did you kind of come to that point where you just kind of stepped was, away for a while? Yeah, it was other priorities in life, and it was working and trying to run my own business and trying to be a serious graphic designer and a serious typographer. And those people um, looked down on kind of video games as a kind of cultural medium, or they, they certainly did at the time. Um, so it, it, it became less important to me. Um, but it was always there in the background and I was always kind of interested. Um, and ultimately kind of after spending around 10 years doing kind of graphic design and advertising and publishing design, um, I, stumbled upon a, a fellow called Mark Morrison, who yep. um, is a, a games writer and game designer, um, ex-Melbourne House and Blue Tongue. Um, and I started going to his um, kind of Hong Kong movie nights at um, yeah, right. Chinatown Cinema in Melbourne uh, and catching up with him a bit and got a bit of a sense of what the game development scene was like in Melbourne. Uh, and he became a bit of a mentor to me. Um, yeah, I mean, prior that's, to that, had there you know, ever been prior to that? Oh, yeah, too, and and kind of started kind of re familiarizing myself with uh, that world. Prior to that, and I guess you know, there's there's periods there where you're messing around with some code, as you said. Um, obviously, you know, from from the magazine there, but you, you dabbled a little bit, and then you've played again a lot of games like the Dooms that, that were also heavily moddable back in the day as well. Yes, was there was there ever a contemplation in that period of your life that this might be something you want to do or did that not even enter the the realm of thought for you it didn't enter the realm of thought i think because i'd been um so focused on graphic design and the culture of graphic design at that time so this is the the 1990s yeah um the late 1990s when there was a really um super indie culture in uh in graphic design we had things like emigre magazine and raygun magazine uh, and these people who were becoming kind of superheroes of um 
the kind of game design world. There were speakers that would be flown around the world to conferences. Yes. Um, and it was that point where the technology was democratizing. You know, we kind of, um, we talk about that in games a lot now, but um, back in the 90s, that was the graphic design stuff, right? It was the Adobe suite. Um, yes. It was affordable desktop software um, that allowed the guy who was making your coffee in the morning to be making your um, business cards and brochures in the evening and then not so long after your kind of websites. So um, it, it was a, a really interesting period where there was a whole lot of really uh, amazing experimental kind of advances in, in um, both the, the kind of aesthetics uh, and the cultural kind of approaches to design um, that was really fascinating, and I guess that kind of took me away. No, that's um, still. I mean, obviously, still a hugely fascinating and important part of, important part of the career. And from that typography, from that graphic design era, it, is there much that you reflect upon that you've been able to bring with you into a the kind of the the teaching lecturing side of things, but also b some of the game design work that you've done as well? Are absolutely. there many transferable skills? Yeah, I think it's been absolutely pivotal. Actually, uh, kind of. Um, well, obviously with graphic design and typography, you've got an inroad into kind of UI design, UX design, all of this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of the graphic design uh, kind of education was around uh, photography, photographic framing, architecture, the built environment. Yeah. Uh, and all of that stuff goes straight to what my first significant role in, in, in games was, which is, is kind of level design. So... Um, being able to understand how a built environment works and also how to frame a camera within that uh, environment is super important for a level designer. Um, and I think I had a, a big leg up thanks to the kind of um, the education that I had. No, that's that's fantastic. And now let's continue to lean into that that first experience in level design. Um, I guess for those listening, what was it? How did you how did you get involved in the? I mean, we've kind of I guess loosely spoken about how you kind of came to ingratiate yourself in the scene a little bit but how did that formal opportunity actually emerge um well there were uh, level designs required at a studio called blue tongue entertainment in melbourne um i interviewed for a role there having spent a bit of time putting together a, a kind of a demo um so at the time i was working in advertising uh and spending my evenings learning um early kind of unreal engine and um source uh, engine uh, kind of modding. This advertising period, would that be the likes of like visual identity and, and the like that you were working Correct. with at that time? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so you've looked up my LinkedIn. I yeah, guess. 100%. Um, you can go, you can go <laughs> check haven't. the history there and you'll I see haven't. me pop up. I haven't looked at that for, uh, for about a decade. It's always a handy resource. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I was, I was contemplating the shift um, and looking for opportunities um, and a role came up at Blue Tongue and Mark... Morrison, my mentor, was working there um, as, a, as a kind of designer on the project that this role was in. So I kind of found out about it through him. Yeah. Um, so I put together a folio and some demos and then went in for an interview and it went terribly and I didn't get the job. Um, and then um, six months later, after I developed some more stuff, um, another role came up and they were gracious enough to re-interview me and it went really well. So I guess something that we've had 
you know, it's kind of been a trend across the show over many years. We, we often find ourselves talking about the success stories, when it, even when it comes to the interview phase and those sorts of things. Rarely, by my own admission, have we necessarily delved into the, the unsuccessful attempts. And I guess that's by part the nature of the show is that we're kind of career step to career step to career step and don't necessarily spend too much time on the the, the attempts that don't work out along the way. But yeah, what sure. would you, like upon reflection, I guess comparing the successful to the unsuccessful applications within the exact same, or at the exact same developer, what would you say that it was that you weren't doing quite right at that particular point in the way you presented yourself? Or was it just certain experiences you hadn't had? Um, what, what was it uh, about it, do you think? I think it was a couple of things. I think I wasn't, because of that long hiatus from uh, from games, I wasn't as conversant with the expectations of the player yeah. um, at that time. And so... Um, some of the material in the kind of playable demo that I put together um, focused around an escort mission, for instance, which was super unpopular at the time, right? Um, And the creative lead uh, kind of seized upon that. And then I was asked to nominate a game that I thought was uh, exceptional from the last couple of years and talk about why. And the game I nominated was one that he had... Uh, kind of bounced off um, right. it was the prince of persia warrior within oh okay yep the second not uh, sands of time of the sequel metal emo sequel uh to uh, <laughs> sands of time um what fascinated me about that game was the um the the fact that you played it uh, uh sort of asynchronously across two uh kind of time periods and what you did in one time period uh, when returning to the other would affect uh, what you're able to do there. And I thought that was a really fascinating concept um, and, and and really kind of executed in interesting ways, but the, the sense of as well was a bit more of a masterpiece, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess sometimes there's a degree of playing to the audience when, you, when yeah, you're responding totally. to some of these things as well. But it is interesting that, uh, you know, uh, escort missions was kind of a part of the whole thing and obviously that wasn't necessarily received too well at the time because it was only i mean this was what mid 2000s i'd be about right 2005 six that sort of window oh yeah um and it was only a few years later where now i'm probably being degrading to both games if i call them escort missions but we think about the likes of bioshock infinite or the last of us for example where at the end of the day you're escorting Allie or elizabeth from point a to point b and they're looked upon especially the last of us um with just the rosiest of eyes and right down now to the TV series. We can probably put that down to advances in uh, AI programming. I would just say you're ahead of the time. Yeah, maybe. Um, so, so once you got into the studio, though, um, a lot of people will know from that period that DeBlob, DeBlob 2 were some of the, the most notable titles to come out of the studio. Um, and so what was it like kind of getting into the mix with those? Um, obviously, you speak about some of your some of your prior experiences and the building design and those sorts of things. And obviously, the, the nature of those, those cityscapes that we see in DeBlob, um, I feel like would uh, lend themselves to a few strengths of yours already. Um, so what was it like kind of getting into the weeds with that? It was really great. Um, it was really exciting. Uh, I felt completely out of my depth, but um, quickly discovered that I had um, something to offer. Um, and, you know, I'd done enough kind of 3D work that I was able to grey box things quite quickly and to a reasonably high standard. Um, and uh, I was able to grok the, um, the intent of the creative team um, pretty well, I think. 
Um, so I was, I was building cities, you know, I was building cities and I was laying in cameras and I was, um, helping everyone kind of, well, I mean, everyone was helping everyone kind of find yeah. their way because we were making a kind of game that, you know, had only existed as a, a student prototype prior to that. Yeah. Um, and we were trying to find ways to make it at scale for console, uh, as a kind of a Wii exclusive. We were looking for ways to try and use the unique kind of properties of the Wii at the time, which was um, only just kind of out in the wild. I mean, Blue Tongue had finished um, their first Wii game uh, kind of prior to the blob kicking off. Um, but we were still looking for ways to kind of really foreground the, the unique uh, kind of input um, that was available on that platform. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of um, ambitious things you were chasing there as a team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as a, as a team that was growing really rapidly, um, we were, I guess, kind of really trying to be agile in the way that we kind of approach these yeah. things and kind of push ideas out and then make really quick decisions about what those ideas um, uh, as, as represented in prototypes kind of revealed about direction decisions that we needed to make and all of this kind of stuff um and i guess that like the game came out it was really successful a sequel emerged from it um and so as you're going from what is a, a very unique and very ambitious idea in the first place to then i mean i'm, I'm simplifying things a little bit but looking to replicate that um sure. what sort of challenges did that pose you and the team as you're trying to change things up and ensure that it's not just a i mean it's a two in name but maybe not a two in nature yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, at the end of um, the production of The Blob 1, we had a big kind of retrospective uh, and looked at things that went well, things that didn't go so well, processes that we could improve, um, initiated um, the drafting of several kind of white papers around um, feature sets that maybe we could kind of take into a sequel. Um, I was tasked with looking at um, modularity within kind of level design, so yep. finding ways of building out levels that was uh, kind of more efficient than level designers making grey box in 3ds Max and artists kind of changing the heights of things and yep. making things rounded that should have been square and all of that kind of stuff. So um, that initiated a series of experiments during pre-production for Blob 2 where uh, we were building out what we called a tessellation system. So yep. um, the whole game was built on um, squares, tri uh, equilateral triangles, and kite shapes. Yeah, right. So every single component of the game was built on those. And the squares were 25 meters across and 25... Uh, it's a square. It's 25 meters. 25 by 25? Don't worry, the uh, math teacher in me wasn't going to call you out on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and the building heights were all in um, 10 meter increments. So yep. when you faced a 20 meter uh, kind of high uh, thing, you knew you couldn't kind of get up onto it, right? So where the first game, there was a lot of ambiguity in the platforming because of the, the way the level design to art pipeline worked, uh, we, we completely removed that. Um, and we introduced a process where levels were authored first in SketchUp um, because it was a, a Google SketchUp, because yep. it was a rapid tool for prototyping. 
uh, and it didn't come with any of the inherent kind of assumptions and biases that you know more complex tools like 3ds max or using the editor would bring uh, and it meant that we could establish a whole bunch of rules that governed consistency around platforming and player experience before then using that object um, that was built in uh, SketchUp to replicate it in editor using the, the assets that the artist yeah. built. And ultimately what that meant was there was a hugely uh, kind of more efficient process for delivering a consistent player experience. And it, it totally worked. I totally believe um, Blob 2 was the better game, um, it, but it didn't do so well. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess there, there's even other challenges layered atop that, which I guess maybe even flew in the face of some of the ch- uh, challenges and things that you had up your sleeve when it came to the original game. You know, you f- totally focused on the Wii and what the Wii can do, and then suddenly with the sequel, you're looking at multi-platform as well. So there's certain yeah. handicaps that can be uh, kind of uh, placed upon it as well because of what the the PS3 and the Xbox 360 could do, as opposed to what the Wii could do. Yes, they might have been technically more powerful, but there's the input point of difference as well, which I mean, for you as a designer, I mean, through this through this period, you went and become senior designer at the studio as well. What did um, what did those two other consoles kind of impose upon you and the team? It was a really weird time. Um, so we we had THQ who were marketing the game as a cross-platform exclusive, which seems kind of weird yeah um we had <laughs> wouldn't fly these dev- days that's for sure yeah we had multiple dev kits on our desks um we had a wii skew that needed to run um on a on a much less capable device uh so it needed to be be kind of um optimized in ways that the other two SKUs didn't but that all needed to work in engine uh simultaneously we also had a huge push from THQ to build the game for that incredible device that I'm sure you've got in your lounge room right now, which is a 3D TV. Yeah, um, yeah, those, those those? the closest yeah. thing I've gone to a 3D TV is a 3DS. <laughs> That's very yes, it. indeed. And just like the um, the challenges that VR developers face in the game space, the 3D TV uh, kind of uh, gave us because. You're dealing with two cameras that both have to run 60 frames a second and that means your game has to run at 120 frames a second um so that's a huge kind of technical challenge yeah yeah absolutely. Uh, we had a huge um well not a huge group we had a, a small group called the shared technology group at blue tongue that were um uh, really doing kick-ass work kind of optimizing for those platforms uh, and we managed to get there like we managed to get there with 60 fps um on the wii and you know things running at 60 on 3d uh for um the playstation and the xbox as well it's, um, it's it was, incredible it was a real challenge and that was like the last several months of my time on that title was as level designer as lead level designer at the time was just about optimization it was about going in and working with programmers to find ways to make things go faster which uh i think is, is something yeah that that 3d kind of variable in there is something i think a lot of people kind of lose sight of and what that kind of did at a time where as much as we hear you know everything needs to run at 60 in, in the current day and age 
when this is this is 10 years ago and those yeah. demands from from consumers weren't there but there was a technological demand that kind yeah, of Yeah well there, the the expectation was still there because you know the people who are making this game, they're all passionate games people, right? And yep. they're working on the most uh, advanced tech that they can afford in their homes. Yep. And they have these high expectations and they expect the game that they're working on to kind of meet those expectations. That's too. It's kind of coming from, you know, all directions. And, um, you know, and at the time we had Ratchet and Clank that was proudly running at 30 frames per second. Um, true. And I totally kind of understand why they made that call at that time. Yeah, and uh, again, I guess there's the how much things changed, but since then, but yeah, it's it was a really incredible feat. Um, and for you, as someone who's you know still only at this point recently entered the industry, you're, you're still kind of really early days, but you're getting those uh, those very different experiences. You're seeing the influence of a of a big publisher upon a upon a title, especially you know a sequel, all those sort of things. What, what was all this like for you personally, as you're you're taking in all these different things? So many lessons, I presume, but um. Absolutely. Too. Huge amount of lessons. And, and I guess the thing for me about that period in my life was that my the early stages of my career, I was actually my very first job out of university was working at a, a magazine called 21C. Yep. Um, I'm glad we cycle back to that. I had it noted. Again. Magazine of the future, very much like an Australian wired magazine. Um, yeah, okay. And at the same time. Um, and there I worked with a multidisciplinary team. Uh, I was uh, engaging um, artists and illustrators and 3D modelers to develop content for the magazine. Um, and I was working cross-disciplinary uh, kind of in a, in a cross-disciplinary sort of way. Um, and a lot of that went away when I was kind of running my own thing and working in graphic design after that period. Returning to Blue Tongue, um, it's hugely cross-disciplinary games, right? You're working with programmers, artists, yep. animators, audio people, the producers, the, the whole narrative people, the whole gamut. Um, and you've got to walk into a room and be able to understand where they're coming from and be able to constructively and objectively try to improve the quality of the project that you're working on together uh, and that that's hugely exciting that's that's the magic of games is finding yourself in a situation where you can work with a team effectively in in that kind of cross-disciplinary environment um, so for me the period working at blue tongue was adapting again to that kind of environment yep. um, starting to understand uh, more clearly the context uh, both technologically and globally and and locally um, that these games were being made in uh, and then charting a way to kind of improve our kind of project and so I started there as a kind of a junior level designer uh, at, in my mid thirties, having abandoned a very well paid role in advertising uh, because it was a passion. Um, and within about a year, I kind of became principal level designer on uh, the blob one. And then by the time we had the blob two done, I was a lead level designer and a kind of senior designer at the studio working on a number of projects that, um, 
still fall under NDA, I'm afraid. But um, that's a bit of a know, shame because yeah, I did have unannounced titles listed there. But that's all right. We'll uh, we'll pass that one by. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's NDA for a company that no longer exists, so I'm not absolutely certain in terms of the the kind of legality. Uh, we'll play it safe. I don't want to put you in. I don't want to put you in a situation. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but without without naming those titles and going into any particular depth, um, what do you take from those experiences? Since you you did get to work on them for for a period, whatever I did, I whatever did. they end up that period. Was. And I at that by that stage I kind of I guess proved my chops as a level designer and as a level design lead so I was running the level design pit yep um, at Blue Tongue um, but I was also a camera specialist um, so I was doing a lot of technical design for camera um, which falls in again out of the kind of graphic design photography kind of stuff but also my own real interest in cinematography and the way camera can change an experience, um, both in, you know, kind of linear media and non-linear media. Um, so, I mean, we were working on a brawler, um, yep. a 3D brawler game. Um, and I spent a lot of time working with a couple of programmers on developing a really super dynamic camera system for that game that once it was implemented, um, you know, people were sitting around in the lunchroom playing it at lunchtime because it felt so juicy. Um, and, you know, it, thanks to the, the, the work of those programmers, um, you know, as, 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 as much as anyone else in the, in the team, um, we were actually getting to a place where that game felt really fun. Awesome. Um, and simultaneously I was working on camera on a third person action thing. Um, mostly doing kind of incidental camera stuff on that. So, um, but still kind of technical design, establishing parameters for FOV and movement speed and loping values and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, looking for ways to juice up the experience uh, at low cost. Yeah. Now, obviously uh, we kind of know that through at the end of that period, and as you, as you reference yourself, a company that no longer exists, uh, things didn't, go overly well for for thq at that particular point and uh found yeah. everything up for sale after the fact but um what was that period like for you seeing some writing on the wall i presume or did it come as a bit of a surprise oh, to you and everyone yeah totally seeing the writing on the wall man because um you know australian game development at that time was largely work for hire for international publishers, right? Well, this was all off the back um, of the, the global financial crisis and the damage that had already been done. Yeah. And so, you know, around 2008, 2009, we started to see companies start disappearing. Yep. Um, uh, Ratbag in Adelaide, I think, was the first one to drop. Yep. Um, and then there were a whole bunch more. Well, we think about the pandemics and all of those sorts of other studios that we had established as well. Exactly. Yeah. And it was all happening as the Australian dollar kept rising against the American dollar. So, you know, at a time when American publishers were, you know, outsourcing a whole lot of work to Australia, the dollar was at about 70 cents to American. Um, and then it started to climb. And, I, you know, when I was teaching, I had this uh, kind of series of terrifying PowerPoint slides that I'd show my students where we'd map the Australian dollar going up, the value of coal going up, 
um, against studio closures in games. Um, and you know, as, as it got to 90 cents and above, the studio started to fall faster. Yeah. Um, Blue Tongue made it to a dollar ten American, and I'm, I'm quite proud of that because that was about the peak of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's it's been period. a little while, so I guess the exact numbers maybe elude me a little bit, but I mean, that's that feels like a very strong effort. It was, you know, and yeah, I was in the um, second round of redundancies. Um, the first came, half the studio was gone all of a sudden. It was a really tough day. I bet. And then we kicked on. We thought that it was going to continue. We thought we were going to keep going with these two projects. Uh, but ultimately, uh, THQ was... You play, you play managed, killed them. <laughs> yeah, a, a fairly poorly managed organization. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there, was, there was kind of no saving at that particular point. I guess, did you, considering that you'd survived an initial round of redundancies, did you... Uh, there, there's obviously that confidence that okay maybe we can keep going and push on these projects did you feel like it was only a matter of time or did you genuinely think okay we've that had to happen it was horrible and you know as much as i don't like it i can see how and why they did what they did but i I'm, but i'm okay like you know you try to be optimistic but you kind of you've got to be realistic in these environments and games is a, a industry that expands and attracts yeah all the time um, like a lung so um these things happen and you kind of have to be prepared for both eventualities absolutely um and as you said obviously there was well from the global financial crisis but there's there is a a big cavity in the australian industry at that particular point in time and so what was that period like because take like the next step is um returning swinburne for some some more lecturing it wasn't the first time at that point because you'd been doing a little bit of uh sessional lecturing well prior um, focusing on your design history and your critical uh, theory but um, where was your head at at that particular point in the redundancy did you think okay I I want to stay involved in development or was it a bit more driven by I need a job like where, where was the well once, was the head I mean, at was once, driving you? once the studio closed down there was no kind of want to stay in development um, for me because I had external factors that were driving a need for more kind of um, sustainable environment. Stability, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I needed stability. And um, the university uh, kind of offered that um, in, in in many ways. And, and so I felt like I could help aspiring game developers uh, kind of achieve their goals, you know, maybe. Um, I felt like I had some fairly current industry knowledge and I knew that the degree at Swinburne was uh, pretty kind of production focused. Yep. Um, having, I delivered a guest lecture or two there um, prior to uh, the studio's closure. Um, so I had a bit of a sense of what was going on there. Um, and yeah, having had a little teaching experience, it seemed like a stable uh, place to kind of rest for a while and uh, and kind of um, apply the knowledge that I developed uh, at Blue Tongue um, and see if I could help some people. 
No, I completely understand that. And I guess as someone who uh, is still a teacher these days, and I'm not going to wade too deeply into that because the listeners are probably sick of me referencing teaching in every single episode I do, but there is something very... I mean, We spoke about stability. There is stability in the, in that particular industry. I mean, through COVID, for example, where you know there was a lot of volatility in a lot of professions, education largely was not one of those. Um I Absolutely. say largely because there's always outlier cases, unfortunately. But for the most part, it was a nice, safe place to be. And I, I'd imagine—I mean, you didn't have the the uh, thing, a little pandemic along the way at the to- at that particular point in time. But that would have been a factor, I'm sure. That you know, I get into this, I get into this job, and I'm probably secure for a while at least. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the thinking. It was a, it was family, family stuff. Yeah. And uh, it just seemed like the smarter bet at that time, given that. You know the the dominoes. Most of the big dominoes had already fallen in Melbourne, and yep. um, we figured the rest of them would go too. So that seemed like the the safe thing to do, and um, probably a bit selfish of me in some ways. But um, it did seem, uh, yeah, it seemed like the only way forward. Um, yeah, and and you know, I totally don't regret it. Like I think I've had. I had 10 years uh, at Swinburne and I've worked with some incredible people. I've worked with some absolutely amazing students and um, worked on so much, uh, so many projects, so much diversity in, yeah. in the kind of stuff that we've, we've kind of developed uh, there over those years. Um, I feel like it's kind of turbocharged my kind of capacity to um, smell a rat in development production because <laughs> I've hit just about every problem you could possibly hit. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and yeah, um, it was a time. Well, you, you certainly, yeah, you talk about that that diversity in the, the the sort of games, the design, the philosophies there. And I mean, for anyone who has listens to this show and has has attended something like PAX before, like we've been able to see samples of that yearly where where you i mean even just as most recently as the last one you were there and you had had your team of students that were presenting all the things that they've been creating and it's a fantastic um space every single year to see some of these ideas that are coming through and the young faces that are working on these games um that's really thank you oh it's it's always been fantastic and i've always had like as we've kind of discussed previously and I guess previous guest on the show, Andrew Anastasi has been one, uh, one, of, one of my former okay. students myself who then uh, went on and was, was in the course and was um, working with you. And it was always, it was always great to hear from him about the things that they were getting up to uh, the, the things that were going on around him from some of the others working on games and always kind of, Hey, do you want to, when, when PAX comes along and you know, you've got your media thing, go along and see this lot because they're doing some really cool stuff. Fantastic. It was always really good to hear about the program and what was going on there. Yeah. It's lovely to hear. Um, and you know, it was a, it was a thing that developed really slowly over time. Um, we had an opportunity, uh, when the first PAX arrived and the coffers were a bit more full at the university, um, to, it was brought to us by marketing actually um, to to showcase there. That was a mid-year PAX, which was not ideal for a capstone uh, final year kind of games yep. uh, crew. Um, but it worked to a point and we we're all finding our way. And then it became a kind of October, November thing. Um, and the rule became that, you know, we're, you're gonna be working on a game this year for the whole year and you're going to showcase it at PAX. And if it's a great game, 
you get to stand next to it for three days while tens of thousands of people come through. Uh, and if it's not a great game, you have to stand next to it for three days while 10, 000, 10, tens of thousands of people come through. Uh, and it became a really powerful motivator for <laughs> I bet. kind of student teams. Um, yeah, and uh, like I think there, there was a lot of good that kind of came out of my, my kind of time there. There were a lot of um, studios that started up off the back of their experience, um, uh, particularly, I guess, in those kind of capstone uh, kind of units. So, you know, Samurai Punk, for example, is a studio that Absolutely. Um, is, is largely kind of Swinburne graduates. Well, I've spoken to a few of them for the show and, and at various different yeah. things over the years and Swinburne comes up, your name comes up. And um, I mean, which for I think, for again, for a few people listening, there's a few dots that are probably being connected here because Andrew's name has been cited several times throughout several episodes over the... Oh, wow. What are we now? Four, really nice five, four or five years, whatever the show's been going for now. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to hear. Yeah, and in fact, like at my new gig, um, I'm working with uh, one of my grads from that very first well not actually not the first packs the second packs the first one at jeff shed uh and a graduate from last year as well small um, world hey we hired her um uh, in january and she's been doing great and so as we as we transition into that phase that robot circus is the the current the current work there and so what what has it been like as you as you get back into the into the game development scene and you you, you actually kind of directly influencing projects in a way that you once did back at blue tongue um well i mean i've been connected with robot circus ever since blue tongue because it's uh, it's run by uh nick hager and uh and kevin chan who are the directors yeah. of blue tongue um and i've been kind of yeah connected and in touch with them the whole time and in fact uh in a period around 2016 2017 um, I stepped back from Swinburne a little bit and started a business uh, called Polyphonic LP with um, Sam Itzo, who's now yep. um, uh, programming at Sledge. Uh, and we made a game called Resynth, uh, which was a minimal musical puzzler. Yep. Um, initially for um, iPhone and uh, Android, uh, but then later for Steam. Um, and we did that out of the robot circus office. Um, uh, and that, that was about me kind of, you know, for, for both, for both of us, it was an opportunity to work together again, cause we kind of really got along well at, at blue tongue, uh, and we're very close friends. Um, uh, but it was also an opportunity for, for me, I guess, as a, as a lecturer at the time to re-familiarize myself with the current environment of yes. the industry and try and ship something in the current environment of the industry, which is something that uh, is super important. Uh, but we know how fast it changes. Process. Yeah, to understand the whole process from from ideation to kind of, you know, checking your bank statements. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I know the studio, I know the people there and um, the projects that they're working on have been really kind of interesting. And so, um, last year i pulled back again at swinburne from uh, five days to three days a week and took on a role two days a week at robot circus yep uh and then this year i've come on uh, kind of four days a week uh and the four days is me wanting to have just a little bit of a break me time yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um and it's been fantastic 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting every day to go in there and um, be able to apply a huge variety of skills. One of the things about indie development, of course, is you've got to wear a lot of hats and a small studio means that um, there are gaps and there are gaps that you can fill. So one day I might be doing UI design, one day I might be doing narrative design or, or kind of, when I say narrative design, I mean, I guess, setting up a, a kind of a, a scenario for a situation. Yeah. Um, but I might also be kind of working in editor, implementing stuff or building 3D models or, you know, whatever's kind of needed. I've, I've, I've built, I've designed more logos in the games industry than I did as a graphic designer <laughs> for all the different pitches, for all the different kind of proposals you know all of that kind of stuff um it, it's certainly one of those things that must be yeah really exciting obviously to to get your toes back into it again and, and really lean lean hard into it and obviously the industry has changed so much it's a such a fast-moving industry and i'm not telling anyone who's listening you know, presenting any surprises for anyone there but from, from your experience of kind of just getting back involved several years ago to now kind of again well not quite full-time but you know pretty close to it pretty um close. it, it yeah, it must be really exciting to kind of immerse yourself in that space properly again. And um, for anyone who's listening who's not necessarily too familiar with uh, with the studio or some of the titles um, or even the, the current work, I'll, I'll leave you, especially on the current work side, to kind of steer that one a little bit just in terms of what can and sure. can't be said. Yeah, the um, current work... What people need to know. Current work can't really be discussed and probably won't be able to be discussed until about 2024. Yep. Um, because it's for something that doesn't exist yet, yeah. um, uh, which is one of the great kind of and exciting things about it. In a lot of ways, it feels very much like diving into to blob on the Wii, um, simply because it's this platform that doesn't quite exist yet. And uh, we're all working on it under NDA. Um, but Robot Circus are a studio um, that make uh, a whole bunch of games that have uh, kind of pro-social focused. So yep. uh, a lot of edgy games, a lot of things um, that are about kind of, I guess, advancing representation of marginalized folks and, um, you know, making the world, hoping to, I guess, make the world a slightly better place through the experience of, uh, of video games. And uh, I guess they're probably most notable uh title is ticket to earth which yes. was four chapter uh release on uh ios and on uh mac and pc it is like uh, i'm not a massive um mobile game player but th it is one of the few games that i i bought a ticket and subscribed to like i was really really keen to play that at the time and uh thoroughly enjoyed my time playing it too yeah fantastic it's it's it was such a hugely ambitious title for the studio it's their biggest piece of uh, kind of original IP um, and it was really well received and um, yeah uh, I was able to kind of sit on the sidelines uh, from um, seeing a very early demo at a lunch in Chinatown um, to kind of seeing the game on the show floor at PAX and actually lend um, Lewis Mitchell, who was their kind of artist on the project, the lead artist on the project, uh, a student uh, packs pass to get him out ah. and kind of have a look. <laughs> oh, you've got to, got to take advantage of the opportunities that you've got. 
Totally, man. So as we start to wind things down, we've shared some amazing pillars of this journey so far from the education to the games you've developed and re-entering that sphere as well. Um, But as we kind of zero in a little bit on you and your work and your life in this, in this business, in this industry, in this, or in the orbit of video games, um, is there anyone that you've encountered along the way through any of those pillars that's really inspired you and the way you go about your work? Oh, wow. I mean, I think, um, the list is too long to um, enumerate. Um, I've worked with a bunch of incredible people. Uh, I've been blessed uh, to have entered Twitter at a time where it wasn't um, accessible. It was actually full of amazing stuff uh, and game developers sharing amazing stuff. And and that that era is tapering off, off now. Um, but I've certainly been inspired by um, a huge number of developers. Um, I mentioned earlier my uh, kind of mentor, Mark Morrison, who yep. uh, continues to be a friend, and Nick and Kev at Robot Circus, who've um, who've always been kind of um, there and available and uh, excellent to kind of work with. And you know, I feel a great fondness for uh, all the folks I work with at Blue Tongue. Um, up until a couple of years ago, we were still having. Uh, Christmas barbecues down by the Yarra or uh, around Albert Park Lake. Yep. Um, just a kind of reunion kind of sessions. That's because a nice spot. A tight knit group. Um, and an incredible number of um, uh, amazingly talented and inspiring kind of students across 10 years at Swinburne uh, who have become my kind of um, shadow network in the. Uh, in the local industry, I guess, because um, I'm still in touch with loads of them. Um, and I get the, the inside word on a lot of things that's, that's kind of happening as a result of that. But I also am able to um, observe and celebrate their kind of successes. Yeah, I must say that's, I mean, look, we, we kind of work with clientele at very different points in, in, their, in their lives and their, their careers. But um, it is one of the things that I enjoy the most actually is after, the, after they've finished school, still you know catching up or hearing from them or social media whatever it happens to be where you learn oh you've gone on to do this or if someone's popped in my inbox and like hey i'm doing this these days i'm, I'm wondering how i could embed that within the school or try and help assist the school with something I'm like this is yeah. incredible like, and it's just it's so <laughs> amazing when you hear of those success stories and i'm sure that's exactly the same for you and and obviously you touched on samurai punk as an example before they are proof positive of exactly exactly that some of the, the wonderful stories that can come out of um out of games and to have been able to interact with them along the way and to be able to share something with them along the way is yeah. great for filling yeah. the cup. Yeah, it was um, it was really funny actually. At my last PAX representing Swinburne, um, I decided to uh, book a hotel for three days in town yep. uh, and I packed everything dutifully uh, and I got to the hotel and realized I'd forgotten all my t-shirts. Oh. So... Um, every morning at PAX, I would rock up to the Samurai Punk booth and buy a fresh Samurai <laughs> Punk t-shirt and rock it for the day. Uh, and it felt good. Jeez, oh, I wasn't paying close enough attention at the time then. I don't think I recall the Samurai Punk shirt when we when we spoke. But uh, <laughs> that's that's awesome though. And uh, certainly, I mean, they they have their merch there and the more people oh, wearing totally. it, the better. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, always happy to kind of rep uh, ex-students as well you know I kind of 
I often get emails from them. Um, you know, they studied with me four or five years ago yeah. and, you know, they're, they're getting in touch to wonder if I'll be a referee for them. And they're asking if I remember them. And I'm like, come on, of course, Darcy, I remember you. You know, <laughs> totally. Here's my mobile number. You know? um, yeah. So I, I feel like I've met um, a huge number of people who will go on to be the the kind of skeleton of the Melbourne games industry uh, in the future, you know, um, and, and, and be the people that kind of help drive uh, development locally. And I feel, um, you know, very satisfied and grateful to have had that opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, describing it as the skeleton of the, the local Melbourne industry going forward is a fantastic one because from everything I'm seeing year in, year out at, at the PAX showcases and even just what we see on social media and those sort of things, it, it looks like that uh, skeleton is looking very strong and very stable and you play an enormous oh, part in building that out. Well, you know, I, I played a part. Um, it's, yeah, uh, it's amazing what a little bit of faith and trust will do. Um, yeah, in, in sure. someone's confidence, uh, and, and and often doesn't take much more than that. So one more kind of I guess semi serious question before we lighten things up as we finish up. Um, what have been some of the most valuable lessons or experiences you've had over the journey? Is there anything that kind of continues to stick with you that maybe even acts as a um, a guiding light through development today or through the the education phase? Um, I or think both? that. Failure is not celebrated enough. Um, we we often kind of try and hide failures or yes. kind of, um, you know, put them in the background and focus on successes. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a lot more to be learned from stuffing up than there is from uh, kicking a goal that you couldn't see. Yeah. Um, and... I think this is the case in in all creative endeavors, you know, that you've got to try stuff, you've got to prove it out. Um, more often than not, you're going to get it wrong uh, first time around. Um, and a lot of the students that I worked with in um, my time teaching um, were made so much better because they made huge mistakes yep. uh, and through kind of reflection and discussion, we're able to kind of learn from them. Uh, and I think the same goes for me. That's, no, that, I mean, super, super important aspect. And I think you you probably knew as soon as you started saying, you as, again, talking to another teacher, you're going to get my, my 100% support when it comes to that one. It is, yeah, how you how you fail and then try to learn from that reflect and better yourself and your work is is a skill set that is often ignored or, or lost sight of because as you say when people try to hide from their failures a little bit yeah. rather, rather yeah. than recognize the failures and take something from it yeah totally so. and i think yeah that, that that's something that i've been thinking about a lot in the last few years like during uh, during our lockdowns, um, I started pursuing a hobby as a, a kind of a woodworker. I kind of mentioned this to you before we started recording yep. uh, and started building out a tool set and building out some skills there. Um, and 
it's a it's a completely unforgiving medium um woodworking you know you cut something too short that's it that that's piece it done. is done um and it taught me uh a lot again or, or reminded me a lot um to to think about failure as something you learn from and to cultivate patience and I don't want to say mindfulness, but um, care, I guess. Yes. Uh, in the way that you approach things. No, that's, yeah, really awesome stuff. And again, I hope uh, lots of people are listening to that particular part because it's it's super important. As I said, some lighter ones before we wrap things up, a little bit of fun with these last couple. Yeah. If you could be credited for any game, so you could retroactively just add your name into the credits, I wish I could have been a part of X regardless of what role it could be a simple or special thanks just to like i just wish i could have been recognized be, being a part of that maybe it was a specific pillar of a game maybe it's the whole thing entirely and you'd love to be the hideo kojima that's responsible for medical medical solid sort of thing sure. um no matter where on that spectrum is there a game that you just love to have been a part of uh there's a ton that's fair <laughs> uh, again because there are so many things that i i kind of love one of the things I really love um, is experiences that are distilled down to uh, an essence that are um, as minimal as they can be while kind of delivering the, the experience that they need to. Yep. And I think one title that kind of ticks those boxes is Jep Carlson's 140, um, the yep. musical platforming game. Yeah, I'm familiar, yeah. Um, uh, which I just adore from uh, all, you know, all sorts of perspectives and for all sorts of reasons. And um, and I, I, I love the work that um, that he did on Limbo as well. Um, just uh, the way Limbo tutorialized the experience in incredibly subtle ways using um, audio cues and uh, minimal animation um, was was just kind of brilliant. Yeah, fantastic so, yeah, choices. I jump on the Jeff Carlson bandwagon there. Yeah, some great selections there. And look, maybe the answer is the same here. But if you could go back and replay any game, strike it from your memory, and get to replay something for the first time. I guess replay is not the right word. I really need to re reconsider that segment. But get to play something for the first time. Get to um, play something for the very first time, having never ever played it before. No, never having played it before. No, it's, it's sorry, it's, no it's one of those weird ones. I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, like every single game that I've enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, I guess the I guess the sort of I wish I could have that all over again style thing without as. as Cliched as it is in uh, kind of game design circles, I'd probably have to say uh, Journey. Yep. Um, no, don't blame me there. And it is, look, cliches, unfortunately, I mean, it comes up a lot, but for very yeah. good reason. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, there, there are so many that were such a whopping surprise to me. I mean, I kind of remember um, taking um, the, the ferry to Tasmania with my family um, when... It was actually just as the first Iraq war um, kicked off. We were hearing about it on the radio in the car on the way to the ferry. Um, and I played a an arcade cabinet game. My God, I've forgotten its name. It was a first person shooter, but everything in it was like billboard sprites. Oh. Um, 
and yeah, you were might be stretching me here. driving in a jeep and these dudes would pop up and you have to shoot them down and i got my dad and i brought him over and i said look how realistic these graphics are <laughs> <laughs> and we've all these, had like, that moment and come back to yeah, the yeah, yeah. and go, oh, what we were talking about 16 bit sprites yeah. um look we obviously can't put the the finger on that particular title but uh the, these guess, are important moments along the way though yeah it's, it's a medium that um has always and continues to um, inspire and amaze and awe me um, in the way that skilled people handle it, yes. um, skilled developers handle it. And I think that's one of the, the exciting things and the most terrifying things about working in this industry is that um, it's always changing and things will always amaze and inspire you in, in new ways and new and unexpected ways. Yeah, equal parts terrifying and exciting. So, um, I guess all the best to everyone who continues to make their way through this industry and uh, and continues to experience those highs and uh, they're not lows, but like those those heart pulsing pulsating moments as they as they make these discoveries and realize that things are potentially never going to be the same. Um, it's it's an it's an incredible industry and it continues to give and and thank you um, for so much that you've provided the local develop uh, local developers around here all that uh, all that they've gone on to achieve so far. Um, and there's there's it's certain that there's there's a degree of your influence there that um, will stick out amongst all those projects. And I'm sure they're incredible thankful for, uh, thankful for you. I've certainly spoken to a few who are who've already expressed that to me. Um, you've done some amazing things in this space, so thank you on behalf of themselves, but those of us who get to enjoy the games that they make. Um, and we're really Stop excited it, to see what you and the team are up to with Robot Circus going forward as well. All right, thank you. Just stop it before you make me cry. <laughs> um, we mentioned Twitter before. Uh, if people do want to uh, tune in, see what you're up to um, on a more day-to-day sort of level, where should people go? Um, I am at Trey underscore Villain, T-R-E-S underscore Villain, uh, which is a kind of play on my surname. Yes. Um, and, yeah, um, I'm there for now. We'll see yeah, we'll see what happens with this, this yeah. with this platform. I feel like I've been saying it for about six months with guests recently, but you never know at this point. It, it could happen, yeah. snap of a finger sort of thing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I won't go the, the soppy path again on you just in, uh, just in case, but uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far. It has been a fascinating one. It was awesome to get to chat to you um, and look forward to maybe doing so again in the future. But um, in the meantime, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. It's been great. Um, and- really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. That concludes another entry of Dev Dory. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, it's been Andrew's story. Thank you much for listening, and I'll see you next time.